Today's episode is brought to you by public.com, an investing platform which you'll be hearing more about later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Very excited to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Joseph Wang of fedguide.com and our special guest, Lou Crandall, Chief Economist at Wrightson ICAP. Gentlemen, welcome to Forward Guidance. Really excited to have you here. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey guys, if you don't know Lou, you really should know. So when I was at the Fed, everyone had a subscription to Lou. Everyone read him. He's one of the world's most foremost experts on money markets. So this is going to be a great conversation. All right, Joseph, because Lou, you know, like yourself, is very, very well versed in the plumbing, and it's going to be a, you know, a somewhat complex interview. So I'm going to rely on you, Joseph, even more than I normally do dur- during our interviews. Uh, do you have a question, Joseph, you want to ask Lou just to, just to start us off? Yeah, you know, one of, one of the things that seems to be top of mind for many market participants is, uh, are we going to have a repeat of something like the SNL loan crisis? So what we're seeing right now, so back then, um, say in the 80s and 70s, many banks had low yielding mortgages on their balance sheets. And as the Fed was hiking rates, they ended up in a position where they had negative carry. Their interest rate expenses were higher than their asset, uh, whether it their interest income from their assets, and they were in a bad position, and many of them were hurt. And it seems like, you know, there's some potential that we could be in a situation like this, because as we all know, many banks hold relatively lower yielding assets like mortgages, though probably not to the extent in the past, and the Fed is hiking rates aggressively and hopes to stay higher for longer. Is that a risk at all, or is it something that's totally overblown? Right, and it's a great question, Joseph. I just want to say SNL crisis refers to savings and loans, which had a lot of issues in the 80s and 90s you know, when Vocal jacked up interest rates up to uh, you know, 1980, 1981. Sorry, Lou? One of the big innovations in bank regulation, bank supervision over the last decade has been the introduction of stress tests. And it's rather startling to discover that a repeat of the SNL crisis was not one of the stress scenarios that they ever looked at, because that clearly, given the policy trajectory of the past year or two, the Fed knew this was a possibility. Um, again, I don't. The stress tests are so complex that I've never looked into the details specifically, because that's more of a supervision issue and less of a money market issue. Um, but. It's turned out to be a more pertinent question than we thought. And, you know, the Fed obviously has extensive balance sheet and performance data on each individual institution, and the supervision teams are looking through that very carefully. Uh, The fact that we, uh, that they continue to be optimistic uh, about, you know, they knew that was an issue when they decided to raise interest rates another quarter point last month. so as to, you know, there are obviously some bank analysts who think that there are, that this is not just, uh, confi- that this that this vulnerability is not just confined to a handful of banks. Uh, at this point, I don't know. One of the things, and Lou, you've, of course, you've known this before, is that the balance sheet, the Fed balance sheet is so much larger, liquidity is so much more plentiful. It seems like the supply of deposits is probably much larger than the past. So, you know, if you have abundant supply of something, maybe you don't really need to raise interest rates as much. That's certainly been the evidence over the past year, whereas the Fed raised rates to almost, let's say, 4.5%. If you look at the balance sheet of, say, Bank of America, they still have a wide swath of deposits that pay basically 
zero. So, you know, maybe even, even if the Fed continues to aggressively hike rates, deposit rates won't have to rise to the same extent that they did back then, simply because we have so many more deposits. The problem is we're getting to the end of the process of um, easy bank adjustments. Uh, you know, one of the issues that's being discussed right now, one of the reasons the RRP facility uh, has been seen as uh, a, you know, a, as an issue is, well, you know, how to put this, uh, you know, bank deposits have been running off very aggressively for the past year. It, it has, that has coincided with some shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, but as with almost everything in uh, money market terms, it's very hard to separate out the cause and effect because everything moves at the same time. I think that the deposit runoff has been purely a function of the Fed's interest rate policy. Uh, as market alternatives have become more attractive relative to bank deposits, uh, the you know money has naturally flowed out. Banks have been willing to see the deposit. You know they've basically been sitting on the sidelines, uh, waving goodbye, because they would much rather maintain the wide interest margins that you're describing. However, we're now at a point where small banks are getting down to cash levels, cash asset levels, that are probably close to the lowest levels they're comfortable with. They're going to have to start uh, raising deposit rates or competing more aggressively in wholesale money markets to replace the funding that's continuing to leave. Uh, we don't know exactly how that process will play out. Up until now, I've simply been thinking that it was a market adjustment issue and uh, that you know, you know, the issue would resolve itself uh, in time. Um, you know, the Silicon Valley blow up makes you wonder how much room small banks do have to adjust uh, pricing on the liability side. There's bank deposits, which are the assets of regular people and, and businesses, the liabilities of banks. When there's a bank run, people pull those, those deposits, and that's when banks go under. Th those deposits swelled in 2020 and a little bit 2021 because of quantitative easing, because of, of zero rates. When there's zero rates, you know, why buy, you know, why go into a bond fund or a money market fund? You're going to get zero, close to zero. So just keep your keep your money at a JP Morgan Chase, right? And then there's quantitative easing, where quantitative easing increases the amount of reserves in the system for banks, not directly deposits, but then they buy a treasury from JP Morgan. The Fed buys a treasury from JP Morgan. JP Morgan replenishes, replenishes it by buying it from the open market. And then pays for that with bank deposits, which are the, the you know an, an asset. So it's a, a sort of you know, switch, switch, switching switching collateral. Um, and but you know, but Joseph, I, I learned this you know pretty much all from you and from your you know, excellent book, <laughs> Central Banking One Hundred and One. Um, and so, Lou, you are saying that the reason that bank deposits have been steadily declining over the past year and you know they de declined at Silicon Valley Bank every single quarter in 2022 and then they fell off a cliff you know in th those few days uh, before it had to be taken over by the FDIC it happened really really quick you're saying that the cause of that is not quantitative tightening which you know in this in the reverse way of QT of, of, of quantitative easing quantitative tightening you would think you know removing reserves from the system deposits would go down you say the primary reason why uh, deposits are flowing out is not quantitative tightening, but interest rate policy, right? Exactly. Uh, well, 
It's not quantitative tightening. The We've had two kinds of deposit outflows over the past year. We had those driven by interest rate movements up until mid-March. And then what happened in mid-March was, of course, entirely different. You had some substantial uh, uh, deposit outflows driven by you know, just market fears. The you know, a key point is that in both of those uh, scenarios, you know, the existence of the RRP facility and the relatively high rate paid on it had nothing to do uh, with the reason why the money left. That may be where some of the money ended up. But you know, people left Silicon Valley not because of a marginal difference in interest rates between their deposits there and uh, deposits elsewhere. And investment alternatives elsewhere. They left there because they simply lost confidence in the institution. And one of the great ironies in all of this is that coming into this cycle, the banking industry as a whole was planning on what is known as a low beta strategy, that they thought that their deposit betas, the uh, percentage of Fed uh, rate hikes they would have to pass through would be very, very low in the cycle. And one of the reasons they believed that is that they thought there would be an enormous lock-in effect from bank apps. That they thought technology would make banks would make depositors slow to adjust because it's so you know cumbersome to type in all those new account numbers in your phone, and that as a result they'd be able to get away with you know just extracting a little more premium by uh, not passing through Fed rate hikes to depositors, and then all of a sudden you found out that that was very true up until until it wasn't that you got to this point where suddenly there was a change in mindset and the, that same technology, which is supposed to keep deposits sticky, uh, allowed them to flow out the door at a completely uh, unexpected, unimagined, uh, unprecedented rate. Joseph, do you have a comment? Yeah, I, think, I think another good point is that technology has also allowed us to spread information about banks much more quickly than in the past. I remember that the people... Uh, involved with Credit Suisse was basically blaming social media for spreading fears about banks and precipitating it, its downfall. So I think technology not only allows people to more easily switch um, from, let's say, a low-yielding deposit account to a higher-yielding deposit account elsewhere, but it also allows fears to spread in a way that it probably wasn't possible in the past. Now, banks, though, they, they compete not just on rates, but also a suite of other services as well. I think, I mean, if you are a bank, Let's say you have a checking account with the bank. To switch that, it's kind of a hassle. Let's say you have direct deposit set up with it. Let's say you have it uh, set up with all your other bills, your credit card bills, your um, mortgages and so forth. So you, you have a, the benefit of, I guess you have a kind of a home advantage. A bank has a home advantage to keep its depositors. But if, if the, the rate difference is too large, then maybe that will change the psychology a bit, like Lou mentioned, that people are actually willing to, to move somewhere else, despite all the inconvenience of having to go through that, that process. Right. You know, without a doubt that as rate differentials become more extreme, the incumbency advantage of your existing bank, uh, you know, eventually becomes overwhelmed by the financial incentive to move. Right. So when people say the Federal Reserve is raising rates, it's, it's implied it's kind of just one rate, but there's a whole suite of rates I kind of move in lockstep. There's the Fed funds rate, which is between a, a range. That's what the Federal Reserve, you know, the action used to be in that before the great financial crisis. You know, folks who are you know, very familiar with Joseph Works know that 
Uh, now a lot of it is in the reverse repo facility, and then there's interest on excess reserves. So that is essentially, well, practically, a deposit facility for people. They could just park their money at the Fed reverse repo. Uh, you know, effectively, they're lending to the Fed as if the Fed needs money, you know, against their their collateral. But they're, you know, we can think of them, and you know, if you disagree, you can share as a. They're funding the Fed, guys. Funding the Fed. They're what? <laughs> they're funding the Fed. They're funding, yeah, because the Fed needs money. Yeah, well, yeah. can I can I break in there? Please. The, uh, they're not funding the Fed. They're funding the Treasury because they are funding the Fed's purchases. I mean, right now, obviously, they're also funding the lending programs. Uh, but the the origin of all of this was the huge expansion of the Fed securities portfolio. And there's been an interesting twist on the Treasury side that the Treasury starting a couple of quarters ago in its quarterly refunding announcements started publishing a new series on the average maturity of the public debt. Mm-hmm. And the new series includes the Fed's, includes the Fed's porf- adds the Fed's portfolio to private holdings of securities, except the Fed's portfolio is treated in this calculation as one big floating rate note. Because the interest exposure on what the Fed has done is transformed that part of the Treasury's interest exposure from long-term fixed-rate uh, debt to a floating-rate instrument, which is where the cost is a blend of the IOER that uh, we were just talking about and the RRP rate. And that's a much more uh, useful analytical measure of what the average maturity of the U.S. public debt is. But you know, a lot of the debate here. Uh, changes when you start thinking in ter- thinking of everything in terms of a consolidated U.S. government portfolio uh, or balance sheet, and you know the Fed using short-term liabilities to finance part of uh, the public debt uh, is simply transforming Treasury debt management. So, so uh, Lou, you're saying the there's an argument saying, oh, the you know, Treasury has issued thirty-year debt, and some of that is owned on the Fed's balance sheet. Therefore, the Fed, ha- you know, the Treasury has long-duration debt. You're saying, in practice, the Federal Reserve is financing that purchase with overnight borrowings, in the same way a bank, let's say, purchase, you know, fund a purchase of a thirty-year Treasury with overnight borrowings, and therefore that if you combine the Fed and the Treasury together, the duration is much shorter. Although. The Federal Reserve can bear all the losses and have a sort of, you know, well, here again, you get- loss, right? And it's just, it's the Treasury won't realize it, except to the point of they won't receive gains after, you know, the unrealized, what's it called? I, you can, yeah. The, well, I look at it uh, differently. I look at, at it in terms of current interest expense. And, you know, so the Fed's earnings go down. Um, you know, right now that's not being recognized because they can't actually ask the treasury to cut them a check for their negative interest earnings. Uh, but you know, if the same thing had been achieved by the treasury not extending the average maturity of the debt, uh, you know, back during the pandemic, not introducing a 20 year bond, um, and it simply ramped up the issues, issuance of bills in order to uh, meet the public, the very, very strong public demand for high quality, uh, safe short-term assets. If the Treasury had met that through Treasury bills, rather than the Fed doing that through the issuance of interest-bearing liabilities, the net outcome for the taxpayer would have been exactly the same 
is what we have now, except we wouldn't be having these debates about, well, the Fed lost money, but yeah, but the Treasury made a bunch of money and it all nets out um, because you know the Fed never gets uh, credit for the money the Treasury saved on the other side of this. But really, when you think about this, when you think about debt management and uh, the management of the central bank portfolio in an integrated sense, uh, the if you think it was reasonable from a public policy perspective to try to lower long-term interest rates by having the federal government issuing less at a time of economic strain, then you really don't care which agency did it. And you know the the RRP facility has been an extremely efficient vehicle for meeting public demand for uh, high quality, safe, short term assets. Uh, you know it's it's been you know very effective. I think it's been. So, Drake, go go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I think that's a really good point. I, I'm really glad to hear that the Treasury has this data series. I think Lou's way of viewing the financial system as consolidating the Fed and Treasury together together is a very useful way to understand public debt. So let's say that Treasury issued a thirty-year bond, and if the and the Fed bought that by and funded it by printing reserves, and so when the Treasury has to make interest rate payments, it has to pay the Fed. But of course, the Fed and Treasury are, are both part of the government, right? So it's like the government paying itself. So what you want to focus on is the interest expenditures to the non-government, to the private sector, and that's just the reserves interest the Fed has to pay on reserves that he created to finance the purchase. And like Lou mentioned, that kind of fundamentally changes your interest rate, your duration profile. By printing a whole bunch of reserves, the federal government's debt is basically floating, which can be very troublesome if we're in a world where interest rates are going to stay higher for longer. Because in effect, you are, when interest rates sort of, when the 30-year interest rate was really low, it would have been smart to kind of issue a whole lot of, you know, longer data debt to lock in those interest rates. But you kind of did the opposite of prudent debt management. And instead, you basically borrowed on a fully basis. And if inflation is, is not transitory, whoa, man, that's going to cause the federal debt to interest expense to be very expensive going forward. Uh, that is all. That is all quite true. But I, I'm going to put it offer a slightly different take on all of this. Uh, I think Treasury bills are a public good. And I think the world is a safer place when there's an adequate supply of treasury bills or treasury bill equivalents, which is what the RRP facility is. I mean, you're quite right about the debt management implications of this. Uh, back during the great financial crisis, there was an awful lot of discussion about the fact that the treasury was aggressively extending the average maturity of its debt while the, while the Fed was busily buying it back in the open market. And why were these two agencies working across purposes, which in that era, they unequivocally were? Uh, and the answer was very simple. Going back to the issues we face in the great financial crisis, the uh, Fed did not want to become Japan and the Treasury did not want to become Greece. So the Treasury wanted to reduce its rollover risk by locking in longer term debt, uh, while the Fed wanted to take that duration out of the market to lower, uh, to flatten the yield curve and encourage uh, an economic recovery. Uh, but, but going back to the point about bills as a public good, I really do think that it's, uh, that there is a public policy benefit to providing an adequate supply of uh, 
government guaranteed uh, safe assets. The you know in this you know there a lot of people would argue for moving the RRP. Not a lot of people. Some very vocal people uh, would argue for cutting the RRP rate to punitively low levels to force money out of the RRP facility. It would have to go somewhere. And the private sector has demonstrated decade after decade that it is just really bad at creating safe uh, liquid instruments. That back in the great financial crisis, you know, you, you ask any derivatives trader at a dealer bank from the great uh, financial crisis, and they'll say, yeah, we securitized everything that it was reasonable to securitize, and then we kept going because there just weren't enough assets. And so you end up securitizing, you know, subprime mortgages, and that is always a recipe for disaster. The fact that we are so bad, the fact that there is a always a huge demand for safe assets and that demand is not going anywhere, uh, really does make it reasonable for uh, you know, debt managers to want to satisfy that demand, regardless of what you know, the Treasury's own interest rate models uh, were telling it that from a pure uh, you know, interest rate risk management perspective, it didn't necessarily want as many of its uh, securities transformed into an, an implicit FRN. Um, as was the case, but the I think the stability benefits of having that money someplace safe where it's not going to be in a runnable uh, investment vehicle are very great. So FRN, I believe, stands for floating rate note, which means that interest expense goes up as interest rates rise. Yes. Lou, I know you have some, some very str- you know, strong opinions about the vocal uh, view that the reverse repo facility, RRP, is a danger to the banking system. And uh, Joseph, could you explain whether you agree with it or not? Well, I want to get your opinion on it later, but could you just fl- uh, or pretend as if you believed in this, You know, pretend you were one of these people who were making the case, Our, the RRP is a danger. We need to cut it so that you know the money stops flowing out of the banks and into the money market funds and into the re- reverse repo. Ma- make that argument so that you can sort of set Lou up to, to hit it out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I want so, this grooved right down the middle. <laughs> so high. So right. So the way the Fed looks at the banking system, the Fed thinks that the banking system needs a certain minimum amount of cash in order to function well, and that's what they think of as the lowest. Uh, uh, lowest level of reserves. Uh, comfortable level? Uh, lowest comfortable levels of reserves to function. The Fed doesn't really know where that is. But more importantly, the Fed doesn't actually have complete control over how many reserves are in the banking system. Because if you are a depositor in a bank, you can always take your money out of the bank and put it in a money market fund. And the money market fund then can take that money and put it in the reverse repo facility. So if the reverse repo facility is offering a very, very attractive interest rate, and you could say that it is right now, then I think there's a possibility that everyone takes their money out of a bank, puts it into a money market fund, and ends up putting it into the reverse repo facility. When money goes into the reverse repo facility, it takes reserves out of the banking sector and into the reverse repo facility. So you could have a situation where everyone does this, and the bank sector gets uh, very low on cash, falls below the lowest comfortable level of reserves, and end up with some kind of plumbing problem that could cause rates to spike. So that that's 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 the uh, it's kind of like a bottomless 
hole that can drain all this money and the Fed doesn't have complete control over it because depositors have the ability to take money out of a bank and put it into a money market fund, which then puts it into the reverse repo facility. Um, that is certainly a scenario that the Fed has to be very mindful of and has to monitor on an ongoing basis. Uh, I don't think we're close to that yet. And, you know, for, you know, one of the one of the difficult things about this particular debate for, for me is that for some time, I thought it would be a very reasonable thing to do to widen the spread between the IOER or also the, the interest on reserve balances, the IORB, and the rate pay, paid on the uh, repo facility. Right now, that spread is just 10 basis points. I think going back out to 25 would alter the economics of this enough to start, uh, you know, it would change the incentives enough to start steering some money uh, back into bank reserves as we get closer to what might turn out to be the lowest uh, comfort, lowest efficient level of reserves. Uh, you're right. We cannot we cannot know where that is. Uh, the only thing we do know is that you don't want to find out where it is the hard way, which means you want to stop well before you get into something that looks like the danger zone. There are some early uh, signs that the Fed can monitor to see if we're getting close. They have internal data, for instance, on the volume of daylight overdrafts at banks, which are very, very low because reserve balances are so plentiful. But we've, what we found in 2019, or as we learned in 2020 from the data the Fed was eventually generous enough to share with us after the fact, <laughs> was that the, the data they were seeing in real time was showing them that uh, overdrafts were creeping up steadily before we had that huge money market spike uh, in September of 2019, which was the previous instance of exactly the kind of scenario that uh, you're describing. Uh, so they're going to have some indication as they're getting closer. Uh, I don't think we're there yet, but the you know the argument the more emphatic arguments that are being made right now is that the uh, the deposit drain itself is just a you know an existential threat to certain classes of banks uh, if that's true given that there's been some visibility about this for a while uh, that's a real failure in risk management uh, that doesn't mean the fed can ignore it uh, if they think it's going to break so many banks that it's going to fundamentally alter the trajectory of the economy, it needs to take that into account, not to save the banks, but to take into, uh, you know, to factor that into its economic forecasts. Uh, I don't think it's that extreme at this point, but again, I didn't see Silicon Valley coming. I agree as well. But Luke, back to your original point about treasury bills and as a safe asset, as a public good, would it make sense from your view to actually have the treasury issue more bills uh, rather than have the private sector rely so heavily on the RRP as a supplier of, of safe assets? I mean, the way that I'm thinking about this is that, well, one is that, of course, bills can be held by everyone. But if you issue a lot of bills, that money would go out of the RRP into the treasury's account at the Fed, but ultimately get spent back into the banking sector. So you could have a way of basically redistributing liquidity out of the reverse repo facility and back into the banking sector to avoid uh, to avoid breaching the lowest comfortable level of reserves. 
If the Treasury were operating with no constraints, I think the supply of reserve of bills would be a trillion dollars higher today than it is. And they've said that they want to increase bills as a percentage of the total public debt. Um, the constraints on the supply of bills are not the single biggest reason to regret the fact that the debt ceiling exists, but it does. And that's been a major reason why they haven't been able to achieve their bill supply, their bill issuance objectives. Uh, sure, if you talk to Fed officials, they have this, this sneaky sus suspicion that at some point over the past year, the, FOM, the staff did a presentation for the FOMC uh, showing what would happen to the RRP facility if the Treasury issued an extra half trillion dollars of bills. Because when you talk to Fed staffers, they always come back to this point, well, if only there were an extra half trillion of <laughs> bills out there. And it's such an arbitrary number that it does make you think that you know that was a scenario that was carefully worked through. Um, I would say issue another one to one and a half trillion of bills, um, at least half of which would probably come out of the RRP facility. But the RRP facility itself uh, is an enormous source of flexibility. The you know, we tend to think about the Fed, the Fed's balance sheet policy in very stylized terms that it's you know doing things for one reason. But every aspect of the Fed's operations interacts with the economy and the financial system in a number of different ways that are very complex. When it, uh, when it buys treasury securities in the market, it at the same time creates new reserves, which adds to the supply of liquid balances, but it's also taking interest rate uh, risk out of the market and lowering, you know, flattening the yield curve and supporting economic activity. Alternatively, when they do emergency lending, they are promoting financial stability, they're shoring up in individual institutions, but again, they're supplying liquidity into the market. You want a framework where they can respond to those policy needs, the need to buy securities during the pandemic, which was originally driven by the need to stabilize the treasury securities market because it was uh, at, the, at the, the breaking point. You want to be able to do that without having to worry about how you're going to stabilize it to keep all of the other parts of your complex interactions with uh, the financial system running smoothly. The RRP facility doesn't require the Treasury to calculate how many bills it needs to issue on Thursday morning. It happens automatically. It's a self-adjusting mechanism. Uh, now, people will make the point, it's you know, a very fair point, that what that means, the fact that it's a fixed rate, full allotment, you know, up to your counterparty limit um, facility, means that it takes interest rate elasticity out of that part of the market. But, you know, central bank policy in, you know, for most of my career and all of yours has been based around the idea that you want to stabilize overnight interest rates and you want to exercise as much control as possible. When you start talking about putting restrictive counterparty limits, the current county counterparty limits in the RPC RRP facility are a very, very remote backstop that are, you know, have very limited impact on total volume of activity. Uh, if you start thinking about trying to force money out of the RRP facility by having uh, smaller limits, then what you're essentially saying is that the, you know, the facility 
will work as a floor pretty much all the time, except when you really need it. <laughs> but when there's an extreme, it's going to break because people are going to be unable in those extreme uh, conditions to get as much investment capacity as they need that day. Market rates will plunge. Uh, there may be circumstances in which you want market rates to plunge, but you know, putting arbitrary restrictions on the amount of uh, cash that can go into the RRP facility is essentially partially dismantling your interest rate floor. And since the you know, central bank doctrine for a number of decades now has been to try to achieve you know, one of the ways central banks tend to measure themselves in terms of monetary policy transmission is their ability to control short-term interest rates uh, effortlessly. And that's what the RRP facility allows you to do. Exactly. So I think just just a little broadly mentioned, there are people who want to get rid of, make sure the RRP is a bit smaller, and they propose two potential ways of doing it. One, is, as Lou alluded to, is uh, reducing the counterparty limits to the RRP. Uh, that way, you kind of force people to, let's say uh, someone wanted was investing $60 billion a day. If you shrink the counterparty limit to $30 billion a day, then that means that you know the RRP mechanically has declined because the guy who wants to put who was putting sixty billion in can now only put thirty billion in, and so that is a way to mechanically shrink the RRP. But as Lou alluded to, it's it's very clumsy and it violates one of the key reasons that the RRP exists, that is rate control. So if you were putting sixty billion in, now you can only do thirty billion. Well, you have to take that thirty billion in balances and you have to put it somewhere in the money market universe. Um, that means that you'll likely have to accept uh, returns that are below the RRP floor, which jeopardizes the Fed's ability to control interest rates. Um, and I, I totally agree. That's definitely a red line that the Fed will not cross. And furthermore, in practice, when I look through the past few years, the RRP is in practice a full allotment facility. If anyone ever gets too close to the counterparty limit, well, okay, if too many people get too close to the counterparty limit, they just lift it. And that's what they've consistently done. Similar for lowering the RRP rate as well. I mean, if you lower the RRP rate, it seems like all the other uh, money market instruments would also trade uh, lower as well. So it doesn't necessarily make it relatively less attractive. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that U.S. Treasury yields surged higher last year. Right now, you can get a 4.8% yield on your cash with Treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. Treasuries is great, but buying U.S. Treasuries is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform public.com has changed all that with the launch of Treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public will even automatically reinvest your treasury bills at maturity, so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 4.8% on your cash, go to public.com forward slash forward guidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thank you, and let's get back to the episode. Joseph, I remember earlier in last year, there was some limit on a Fed facility. It was, you know, the total was $500 billion, And you said, Jack, that means $500 billion means unlimited. It means if, <laughs> if the demand is $600 billion, they'll just raise it to $600 billion. Just 
and Joseph right. and Luke, there's a lot that you know I'm I'm sort of struggling to uh, uh, sort of ascertain. So I just want to break down a few things for the audience. Well, let's see, let's see um, if if I can. The first, Lou, is your point about interest rate sensitivity. That being like, if there's a treasury bill that's trading 97 cents on the dollar mm-hmm. one year, it's a three percent interest rate. But if everyone wants to buy it, it will go 97, 97 and a penny, 97 and two cents. So the interest rate will go down. Uh, so it varies with demand. On that's unlike the reverse repo facility where 100 billions in it, it's paying 4.75 percent. A trillion dollars, it's still paying 4.75. 10 trillion dollars, it's it's completely um, static. So that's a point about financial stability. Um, and uh, yeah, J- Joseph, tell us about the the floor and the ceiling. So right now, the lower Fed funds rate doesn't matter, but the lower limit is 4.75 percent. The upper limit is 5.0 percent. Within that sort of floor, there's all sorts of stairways and all sorts of rates. So tell us, where is the reverse repo rate, the IOER, interest on on reserve balances, interest on excess reserves? And then why does the proposal to lower that uh, uh, RRP rate, reverse repo rate, uh, like, why does that think, why do people think that that will help financial stability? And I guess it, you know, uh, sort of spoiling it, like the, the answer, right, is that money is just flowing in to the reverse repo facility and they want to make it less attractive so that some of the liquidity goes back into the banking sector. So, so Joseph really, you know, break it down for the, for me and the audience about uh, the floor of rates. You've talked about it before, but yeah. Yeah. So the fed conducts monetary policy today by moving the overnight interest rate. in practice. That's by moving the reverse repo facility rate. Uh, what that is, is basically if you are an investor, any investor really, uh, the RP is a way that you can earn a risk-free re- return on an overnight basis. Now, you can't invest in RP directly, but what you could do is you could put money in a money market fund who then has the privilege of investing in the RP. And that's really how the Fed controls interest rates right now. So let's say the Fed moves the RP offering rate to 6%. That means globally, anybody who has dollar cash in the world can indirectly access this 6% risk-free rate overnight. And... Logically, if you can invest risk-free at the Fed at 6%, you wouldn't be willing to accept uh, any other lower interest rate return from from another investment. So that's how rates are controlled in practice. Like Jack, as you mentioned, there's also another administered rate that the Fed has, and that's interest on reserves. That's the interest that banks get when they deposit cash at the Fed. Now, that has a slightly different transmission mechanism. That's about controlling the minimum return that banks are willing to accept when they make a loan. So if you're a bank and you want to make a loan, uh, what kind of interest rate are you going to offer your borrower? Well, it it has to be in some respect uh, related to what you think the uh, path of the Fed's overnight interest rate will be, because otherwise you just leave cash on deposit at the Fed. Now, these are slightly different because um, everyone can indirectly access the reverse repo facility, but only banks and certain yeah only banks can off access and certain okay educators can access the Fed's balance sheet directly and collect interest on on reserves. Now, as you mentioned, Jack, some people think that well, if you have all this money pouring out of the banking sector and going into the bank, going into the reverse repo facility, an easy solution for this would be to just cut the RP rate. So that it's really low and so that money would stop flowing out of the banking sector and into the reverse repo facility. Um, But that really doesn't make any sense because, well, 
well, as we've just mentioned with uh, with Lou, that that kind of violates a, a primary purpose of the reverse repo facility. That's the control overnight rates. Then you, the Fed, is not able to implement monetary policy. But more broadly speaking, is that if you look at money market rates, treasury bills, let's say repo and so forth, they all trade at a spread to the RRP offering rate. So if you shift the RRP offering rate, you know you kind of just shift the whole constellation of money market rates lower. You don't actually make the uh, reverse repo facility less attractive. It, it kind of maintains its relative attractiveness. Right. And cutting the reverse repo rate, but keeping the Fed funds rate at 4.75%, you're really cutting rates. Like they, they say, oh, we're not cutting rates. But the, what matters is the reverse repo rate. The Fed funds rate, that's just like something they te- teach college kids. <laughs> they, I wouldn't go quite that far. The, I, that captures the right spirit. But getting back to this is why some people are uh, uh, suggesting that they cut the RRP rate all the way to 2%. If you widen the spread between the interest rate on reserves and the RRP rate to that uh, level, what you'll end up with is market rates that are floating somewhere in the middle. And I have no idea whether it would be they, if you cut the RRP rate by 250 basis points, I don't know whether commercial paper rates would come down. 100, 150, 200, somewhere in there. But again, you would be surrendering. Uh, you'd be surrendering control of overnight rates, and that uh, you know there could be circumstances so dire where you need to do that. Uh, but the Fed has been very, very insistent on the fact that it wants to separate interest rate policy from financial stability policy in here, um, and the idea of easing. The idea of lowering the RRP rate by 15 or 20 basis points as a technical tweak uh, wouldn't violate their uh, monetary policy guidance, uh, cutting it dramatically uh, because you think the RRP facility is somehow a danger. Uh, that would, uh, you'd be allowing financial stability concerns to override your monetary policy objectives. I just briefly want to go back to something Jack said earlier. Um, he said, you know, you know, correctly, he said that, you know, you can see the RRP facility is just a, a bottomless pit, I think was the phrase. Um, and that's true. Money can just pour in there endlessly. Um, but the fact that the money is pouring in is not due to the existence of that. Of that. That's sort of like blaming uh, storms on the existence of storm drains. <laughs> the, the uh, you know the things that are driving uh, that are driving money out of the banks, you know that would still happen, even if the you know might happen a little bit less if the alternative was less attractive, uh, but it'd still be happening. Oh yeah, I do want to follow up on the whole question uh, Jack's point about uh, the fact that bill rates would be more elastic. This has been, you know, Joseph, as you know, this has been part of the debate about the RRP facility from the beginning, that in the event of a flight to quality, what what happens in the bill sector tends to be self-correcting. If people become uneasy about banks, then they want to uh, flood into treasury bills, but eventually treasury bill yields fall very low and you're making a significant sacrifice. Um, the, you actually have to think about whether that's worthwhile or not, whether you're that concerned. If there's no elasticity in bills, you don't have to, 
you know, the, the argument is that it's a no-brainer. If what we have been seeing for the past year in terms of bank outflows had all been a flight to quality, then there would be a very real concern about the role of the RRP facility. But you know what we've seen since Silicon Valley, we haven't seen a big increase in the RRP facility. Uh, that's an entirely different phenomenon. Um, and it doesn't seem as if the structure of uh, the Fed's programs is exacerbating it. Yeah, so, Lou, it's interesting. We haven't seen a huge influx into the reverse repo facility. That that's I didn't know that. That, that surprises me because I know that treasury bills you know, are starting to trade at a pretty significant discount to uh, the reverse repo uh, uh, rates. And that by itself doesn't, doesn't mean anything. But there's been a huge flood into money market funds, right? And money market funds are, a lot of them are into the reverse repo facility. So why hasn't the reverse repo facility gone up? Um, I'm not sure exactly what the, well, part of it is that uh, FHLB issuance Yes. Is up, and as gov- as you know, a lot of the money that's gone into the money fund complex has gone into government and agency uh, money funds that are, have that as an eligible asset. So the FHLBs have been recycling a lot of this cash back into the banking system. Um. So, Louis, it sounds like you are a uh, not a believer, to put it lightly, in the the lower the proposed lowering of the reverse repo facility. And Joseph, it sounds like largely you agree with Lou. I feel like I don't have enough really to form my own opinion, but for the sake of argument, I will you know quite quite happily adopt the the view that there's an emergency in the banking system and rates need to be cut you know immediately to stop the outflow of deposits. And I suppose I'll I'll give a drastic uh, Lou for for you. Uh, a, a metaphor, which is that banks are sort of like fish in a little pond, and the reverse repo facility is draining the water out of the pond. And if it continues, the banks are going to run out of water, and that's the American economy. So yes, this whole you know theoretically, banks should have control of interest rates. That's all a nice you know theory, but in reality, the banks are bleeding, and the fish the fish need their oxygen. So what 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 do you say to that, Lou? My answer to that is that for the banks, the for the fish that need the oxygen, if you don't uh, if you don't catch the runoff in the RRP reservoir, it just flows all the way down to the ocean. It doesn't go back where you want it to go. the The money is leaving the banks for reasons that are only tangentially related to the RRP facility. Uh, if you think the banking crisis is so severe that you need to cut the overall structure of money market rates to preserve bank stability. That's a different argument. Uh, and I would I would make the argument that what you should do is uh, cut rates explicitly uh, to, uh, to do that. But doing it by making the RRP facility a less efficient uh, calibrating mechanism uh, just strikes me as being the wrong route to take. Hmm. Thanks. Joseph? So I, I tend to think of what's the, the influence into money market funds, not so much rate-driven this past month as more safety-driven. So it seems like there are people who are panicking about their banks and they're just taking money out and moving from small banks to bigger banks and from the entire banking sector to the money market funds. Uh, the way I think that this is, I think this is largely panic-driven because if you look at a graph of government money market fund assets over the past several months, they've been, you know, just edging up slightly, even as the Fed hikes rates aggressively to 
of four and a half, five percent. It's only since a couple of weeks ago that we have a big surge into money market funds, and that coincides with the panic in the Silicon Valley Bank. Another way that you can tell that it's panic driven is that, and not rate driven, is that you have outflows out of the prime money market funds, who are the money market funds that are able to invest with banks and offer a slightly higher yield. Um, so if it's all rate driven, you would expect inflows, net inflows into those funds as well, but you actually have net outflows. The first outflows they've seen in, in several months, by the way. So um, I, I don't think toggling the rate will um, do anything to, to change this, to, to change this dynamic. It's mostly about, I think, depositors feeling more secure with, with putting money in their banks. And if I could just follow up on that point, um, the, if you were to drastically uh, reduce the availability of RP balances for banks, uh, you would, in fact, given that you the limited supply of uh, securities eligible to be bought by government money funds, you would probably encourage inflows into prime funds. And it's actually a really good thing the prime funds uh, were still pretty small at the beginning of this uh, of this episode, because we've seen time and again that outflows from prime funds can be disruptive. If the Fed had had to introduce for a third time a money market fund backup facility uh, to support them in this episode, the congressional backlash would be rightfully, uh, you know, very, very um, impactful. Yeah. For context, guys, during the great financial crisis, there is a run on the prime funds. And during March 2020, there was another run on the prime funds. So in response to the first problem with the prime funds during 2008, they had this huge money market fund reform thing. And it turns out it actually didn't work all that well because the prime funds broke again in, in March 2020. And so it, it would be, as Lou noted, uh, look very poorly for the regulars would, would look very poorly if the prime funds um, got more inflows and ended up with having more problems later on. And again, if they, you know, much of the growth that we've seen in prime funds in recent months uh, has been in retail funds rather than institutional funds. And historically, retail funds uh, have balances have been stickier. Uh, just the way deposits that are associated with, uh, you know, very convenient bank apps tend to be sticky at banks until they're not. Um, but if we had had a significant increase in institutional uh, money fund, uh, if we had returned to anything like earlier levels, uh, this it would have been an ugly additional dimension of the uh, turbulence in the last few weeks. Also, I just wanted, since we're getting towards the end of our time, uh, Lou is also a very done very good work, an expert on the mechanics of just treasury financing. And so as we look through the next coming months, and we're getting into tax season, of course, so tax season, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening in plumbing as you know, tax receipts flow out of the banking sector and into the TGA and so forth. Um, how is that looking so far? And do you have any thoughts on the... Uh, debt ceiling coming up in the, in the coming months as well. Um, I'm assuming that this is a family show. So when I talk about the debt ceiling, <laughs> I, I need to censor myself. It's, it's uh, not a family show, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> honest, honest to God, you know, for, what is it, 30 years now, 
on a regular basis. You get a small group of uh, true believers, uh, fiscal conservatives. And I'm in general a fiscal conservative. However, if I'm a member of Congress and I don't have the votes to actually achieve fiscal reform, my response is not to threaten to take the U.S. economy into a dark alley and bludgeon it to death unless you decide to change your votes to agree with me. You know, it has it. It never achieves anything except it's a heck of a fundraising uh, opportunity for a certain brand of fiscal conservative, but it is so counterproductive and uh, just anyway. Okay. Back to family show mode. (laughs) Um, So we could be, uh, I have no idea how this is going to play out. The numbers are, we're going to find out, um, we'll get a much better fix by the final couple of days of April on where we are. But, you know, April tax receipts take a long time to process. Uh, You know, readers always ask me, why does it take the IRS two weeks to process all these checks? And the answer is the IRS has to process them in their own dedicated facilities. And so they've got these large service centers that are several football fields wide. They need to staff them for a couple of weeks. To do it all in a week, you'd have to have them be you know, half the size of the state of Iowa. Uh, just It would be an unreasonable investment. Uh, but we'll find out at the uh, end of April you know, how strong or weak the April tax season was. It's going to be dramatically weaker uh, than last year because we're not going to get a repeat of the just tidal wave of capital gains taxes we collected last year. But how much uh, how much weaker, nobody knows. Uh, it's so the right now, there is a small but non-zero risk that we're actually going to run into a constraint in the second week of June, that that's a seasonal low point in the Treasury's fiscal resources. Uh, I think they've got about $100 billion of clearance there right now in my projections. Uh, $100 billion could disappear very quickly given how, you know, given how large federal, uh, the federal budget is and how volatile the flows are. Be- best guess is that it really comes to a head in uh, late July, or early August for technical reasons, that's where that becomes another period of uh, seasonal, uh, where the seasonal risks are higher. Now, you know, in all the things you've read about the budget negotiations, the point that keeps coming up is that it's very difficult to negotiate when one side doesn't really know what it wants yet. That the, what the, you know, what the fiscal conservatives, especially in the House, want to achieve is significant reductions in spending. Um, but they haven't outlined those yet. And in all probability, they're not going to, I think they're not going to be able to until they're deeper into the appropriations process, which they would le- like to see wrapped up uh, by the end of the fiscal year in September. There's been some discussion, and this strikes me as highly rational, and therefore, I think it's unlikely to happen. But there's been some discussion <laughs> about passing, you know, preemptively passing a short-term extension designed to expire at the end of September to align the debt ceiling de- deadline with the government shutdown deadline. 
that we have this separate process where if we don't have spending bills by October 1st, the government has to go into a partial shutdown. Mm -hmm. uh, it would make an enormous amount of sense to align those two deadlines and have you know one big uh, fiscal policy showdown and you know allow the treasury to operate without serious constraints. I remember back in the after the great financial crisis when uh, you know the Dodd Frank Act was being considered and they were discussing you know Title II uh, systemic risk exemptions to allow the the Treasury to lend money to the FDIC to bail out banks, uh, the exemption that was used last month. Uh, the argument, people were saying nervously, but what happens if that happens during a debt ceiling crisis and we can't do that? Well, gee, guess what? <laughs> so, uh, you know, as, as it turns out, the Silicon Valley and Signature uh, failures don't look like they're going to affect the debt ceiling uh, timeline at all. But it, but it is just a reminder that you really don't want to introduce artificial constraints on this stuff that could create very serious real world uh, disruptions. Um, you know, so it's kind of sad when you think that the really optimistic view is that we won't face uh, a really serious crunch until October 1st. Uh, you know, even in that scenario, the risk that we end up having to move to federal government payment prioritization is pretty high. Uh, the fiscal conservatives want to dig their heels in. Uh, they are not going to give McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, the votes that he needs unless he's shown that he's willing to be serious. And it's been demonstrated uh, you know, we go into this episode, you know, pretty much knowing that it is possible for the Treasury to simply uh, process payments on a first first come, first serve. Well, no, not first. You know, just queue up payments and only, you know, prioritize interest payments, prioritize some other uh, categories. Um, and then everything else just waits until enough tax revenues come in. I think that would be potentially economically very risky, uh, but there's a fairly good chance that it could happen because the politics of it just seem to be pointing in that direction. So for the audience, payment prioritization is one of the ways that the government could avoid a, a default. So every day the government takes in a whole bunch of revenue from corporate taxes, income taxes, payroll taxes, and so forth. And it has to pay out a whole bunch of stuff, not just interest payment on its debt, but it also has to pay its workers, has to pay vendors, you know, buy tanks and stuff like that. So one of the ways that the government could technically avoid a, a default on its debt would be uh, when it takes in income, it prioritizes payments to um, treasury holders, as Lou mentioned. That way, even though the government reaches its debt ceiling, it doesn't have to default. It'll just uh, you know, not pay its government workers and other contractors and instead take the money that it has, which is not enough to pay everyone, and just prioritize uh, treasury treasury holders instead. And I think they can probably do that for, for some time actually, uh, but it would make a lot of people who depend on the federal government for, for their paycheck very unhappy. All right, so, so that's the risk if the debt ceiling uh, continues and the government does not, not raise the debt ceiling. But what about the risk that actually the debt ceiling does get raised and uh, the treasury can issue a lot of bills 
you know, Lou, I'm drawing upon uh, notes that we had from a prior conversation. And if the Treasury issues bills, then reserve balances will move from the banking system to the Treasury General Account, the TGA. And you said that they will, quote, drop like a rock. What are the effects of that on financial stability? You know, in the middle of the conversation, we talked about the the uh, deposits dropping like a rock, bank liabilities. But what about when uh, there aren't enough reserves? When 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 banks, commercial banks, holdings of of reserves, Federal Reserve balances, when they drop like a rock because they have to you know soak up all the the, the Treasury issues. How is that a problem, Lou? So I, since the question is directed at me, I'll take it first. I'm sure Joseph would answer this in fairly similar terms. Uh, so this gets back to the whole question of what the minimum comfortable level of reserves is. Uh, right, I said earlier that I thought we were well above that level. However, we could have a very, very sharp adjustment, and I'll get back to the details of this in a second. We ha- could have a very, very sharp downward adjustment in the supply of reserves over a period of weeks or months. And that might, you know, Again, earlier, I was talking about the fact that as we get closer to the threshold of reserve stringency as opposed to reserve uh, ampleness, uh, not my terms, the Fed's terms, uh, <laughs> the, as, we get close, as we get closer to reserve stringency, you know, we'll start to see little telltales in the financial system show, telling us that intraday liquidity is getting a little strained. However, we won't have a lot of time to process those telltale uh, signals if reserve balances balances fall by, say, half a trillion in the space of six or eight weeks. And you know, the mechanism there, as Jack suggested, is that uh, the Treasury is being forced to operate with a much smaller cash balance at the Fed than it thinks is prudent. It thinks it ought to have six or seven hundred billion dollars just in case you know there is a cybersecurity problem. It can't you know, hold auctions for a week or two. Uh, the, there are, could be any one of a number of circumstances in which the, tri- the federal government wants to have the cash on hand to address problems uh, immediately. Um, it's been forced to economize on its cash balance. It will. It has in the past and will again rebuild its cash balance as quickly as possible by issuing a ton of treasury bills in the weeks after a debt limit increase. That mechanically would draw the reserves, draw cash balances out of Fed, uh, out of bank reserve balances and into the treasury's general account. We could go from a very solid cushion of surplus reserves on the eve of the debt ceiling action to you know a, an insufficient supply very quickly uh, so this is you know again getting back to the whole point about not the fact that I don't object in principle to the idea of widening the spread between the IRB and the RRP rates. I think it would be wise to be uh, moving in that direction over time because you want to start incentivizing funds out of the RRP facility before you get to that particular disruptive adjustment. Um, I, I would say, though, that given that we've now sort of dressed up this issue as being a sort of crisis related. You have to be very careful about the signals you're sending. If you do start to tweak uh, a month ago, I would have been all in favor of the fed widening the spread by five or 10 basis points. The next FOMC meeting right now, I would just say, you know, leave that one alone for a while. Let's let this particular 
debate die down. But yes, in the second half of the year, uh, let me rephrase that. Um, just because we get to October 1st, this, the debt ceiling impasse could stretch out all the way into 2024. That in the past, there have been plenty of episodes where they can't agree on what the long-term fiscal compromise should look like. So they just keep kicking the can down the road. And, you know, December 15th happens to be a very popular date for, uh, you know, setting a deadline for action just before the uh, congressional recess. Uh, it would not be a surprise to see things get extended several times here. So we don't know when uh, things will finally come to a head in this debt ceiling episode. Uh, but when they do, there's a very good chance that it's going to have a lot of technical implications for money market uh, flows. Yeah, that's a really good point. So like Lou mentioned, if you are a bank, you have a checking account at the Fed. And if you are the Treasury, you also have a checking account at the Fed. If the Treasury were to suddenly issue a lot of bills, then money could go out of the banking sector and into the Treasury checking account at the Fed, and that drains, potentially drains reserves out of the, the banking sector. Now, in the past, when the Treasury issued a whole bunch of bills, it would be the money market funds that purchased them. So they would take money out of the reverse repo facility and instead buy bills, and that money then would move out of the reverse repo facility into the Treasury's checking account at the Fed. But what we've seen in the past few months in the data is that the money market funds haven't really been buying bills. They've been buying agencies. As, as Lou mentioned earlier. And that could be in part because bill yields are just not attractive compared to the reverse repo facility. The marginal buyer of bills seems to be households. So let's say high net worth individuals who instead of paying a 50 basis point fee to a money market fund, decided to buy treasury bills directly. If that's the current setup, if the marginal buyer of bills is someone who banks with a commercial bank, then in the future, if there's a sudden surge of bill issuance, that you can easily see a sudden drain of cash held in the banking sector into uh, the TGA, and that could leave the banks in in a in a sudden shock. So it's it's not something it's not a setup we've seen in the past, uh, simply because in the past the marginal buyer has has always been the money market funds. So it's definitely something interesting that that we'll see play out in the coming months. And Joseph, you've written about this on FedGuy.com. Uh, I believe it was a piece published last year in September called The Reserve Gap. And you show how the Federal Reserve has a minimum level of, of comfortable reserves below which, uh-oh, you know, yellow warning sign, red sign, you know, alarm. Why is it that, oh, $1.9 trillion isn't enough for the banks to have? I mean, that's $1.9 trillion seems a lot, a lot like to me. Uh, especially with the context when, you know, as our you know, previous guest, Joseph uh, Peter Stella said, before the great financial crisis, it was something like $20 billion. So how if, you know, we have a hundred times, the banking system has a hundred times as many reserves, and yet you're still having problems. And Joseph, I know I've asked you this question a million times, but, you know, I still don't know the answer. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think part of it is because post great financial crises, banks are required to hold a lot more cash at the Fed. To, uh, to protect themselves from, from liquidity price crunches. So the, the regulators basically force them to hold more cash. But I, in my own personal view is that I think there's a sizable disconnect between what the Fed thinks is the lowest comfortable level of reserves in the banking sector and what the banks think is their lowest comfortable level. So I, I say this because the Fed actually has all these surveys to banks asking them, 
how many how many reserves do you need? And that number that comes back is always pretty low, actually. I think um, a few years ago it was it was about you know a trillion dollars and so forth. I think the Fed suggests from um, some of their commentary suggests that it, they think it's about you know two and a half trillion dollars, give or take. So I think there's a, there's a gap there that the banking sector is probably going to be better than than um, better than than expected, at least according to the Fed's expectations. You know, on that one, you know, one of the issues last time is that the uh, Fed surveys. Uh, we're saying that you could go down to a trillion dollars in reserves. And in September of 2019, we found out that the right answer was 1.5 trillion, that that was the, you know, that was the code red level. Uh, you know, the, those senior financial officer surveys, uh, the, you know, the really corny line I use about that is that those numbers that, uh, those numbers are just a plan that somebody writes down in a uh, sunny uh, office on a summer afternoon. And as a great American philosopher once said, everybody's got a plan till it gets punched in the nose. <laughs> and that when you get to one of the things that happened in September of 2019, one of the one of the problems is that the aggregate minimum comfortable level is higher than the sum of each individual bank's estimates, because there is always some maldistribution of reserves in the system. And if you get a maldistribution, uh, some banks may not care that they're way over their level and other banks are suddenly kind of running along the edge. And once some banks start slowing down their uh, throttling back their intraday payments, it just propagates through the system and you get gridlock. Uh, but more generally, you know, the history of all, the big difference is that has led to an entire structural revolution in liquidity management uh, in the U.S. banking system is the fact that the Fed now pays interest on reserves. The prior to uh, the great financial crisis, they did not pay interest on reserves. They asked for the ability to do so repeatedly and were repeatedly denied. Um, the and so what that meant was that required reserves essentially implied what was known as the reserve tax, that banks were foregoing interest because they had to hold sterile balances at the central bank as a liquidity reserve. Well, forcing them to hold sterile reserves as a liquidity backstop was obviously inefficient. That the, up into, you know, in the early days, the idea was that required reserves actually served a safety and soundness purpose. But especially after the Volcker years and double-digit interest rates, you know, people came to realize that this was the wrong way to achieve liquidity objectives. It was overly costly, and you know, the cost of liquidity um, management varied hugely through the cycle in inefficient ways. So Alan Greenspan, in particular, hated the reserve tax, not because he hated safety and soundness, but because he thought it was economically inefficient and tended to drive funds out of the regulated banking system into the shadow banking system. So Greenspan, uh, over a period of years, essentially repealed required reserves that he kept cutting, you know, creating exemptions, lowering reserve ratios, uh, reducing the aggregate amount to a level where he could still use it as his handle on the on the uh, money market on the money markets to move interest rates up or or down by manipulating the supply of reserves, but in a way that wouldn't materially affect bank balance sheets. Uh, 
So what that meant is the banks had to manage liquidity by accumulating secondary reserves. Some of those were in the form of treasury securities, but treasury securities are not a not a perfect substitute because in a stress event, there's no such thing as a cash equivalent. There's just cash and everything else and treasuries settle on a next day basis. So what banks did was build up these huge networks of reciprocal Fed funds, uh, you know, balances, and banks were borrowing from each other to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars in the overnight Fed funds market. And that provided them with liquidity because that money came back first thing the next morning, unless it didn't. But it's a really <laughs> terrible way to run a financial system, to have banks lending each other hundreds of billions of dollars on an unsecured basis uh, in the overnight market every single day, and having to do that to ensure adequate uh, intraday liquidity. So what we did was completely rewrite the uh, the liquidity management rules, and banks themselves became much more conservative. And once interest... Uh, once the interest rate on reserve balances became competitive, it was just a complete game changer that banks suddenly planned their liquidity needs, both their own internal liquidity needs and their uh, externally imposed regulatory liquidity needs through reserve balances. And back in the day when liquidity was managed by funding desks, those funding desks were a, uh, they were a profit center. Banks wanted to make money by getting a lower effective cost of funds than the Fed funds rate. Uh, and the incentives to minimize interest costs, maximize trading profits uh, was the same there as it was in you know, the treasury dealership within the bank holding company. Uh, today, liquidity management is borderline an extension of the compliance department. The a liquidity manager gets uh, evaluated on how many red flags they uh, they have in the course of a quarter. You know, did we fall below this liquidity metric? Did we cross that line? Did we breach this threshold? They're extremely conservative and have very strong incentives never to breach uh, any of the regulatory thresholds. So that change in the liquidity management culture in the banking system is really fundamental, and it completely changed the necessary level of reserve balances. Well, uh, thanks for that, Lou. Because we, we only have a handful of minutes left, Lou, I just want to say that you're the editor of the Money Market uh, Observer at at uh, Wrightson ICAP. I've got two final questions, and you can choose which one you want to answer. The first question <laughs> is, at the next Fed meeting the, uh, in May, if you somehow you know, put on a, a, you know, a, a sort of spy outfit, you were able to get in there and ask Fed Chair Jay Powell a question, what would it be? And the second question is, what will you be uh, attuned for the most at the upcoming commercial bank um, uh, um, uh, earnings reports that will start to be released next week? And so I, I think on a, a Friday, April 14th, just so people know, I'll, I'll actually be interviewing Chris Whalen. Um, uh, on, that's the day that JP Morgan's uh, earnings are released. So, uh, Joseph, which of those two questions do you want to answer? First, you, Joseph, and then Lou. I'm more interested in what happens with the commercial banks this next week. So there's a big narrative now that we're going to have a credit crunch because of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Banks are going to cut back making loans and that will bring us uh, towards a recession and so forth. And I'm not sure how valid that is. I 
want more clarity from the big banks to see how much of what uh, we've seen in the regional banks has impacted them. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the same question on you know on the day of every FOMC press conference. I huddle over the phone with a bunch of reporters trying to figure out what question to ask uh, Chair Powell, and you know the the problem is that what you want is a question he will actually answer, and he you know he curates those answers very very uh, carefully and very well. Um, the on the subject of the banks. Uh, you know, for me, it's, you know, like Joseph, that's going to be uh, be critical, and I will uh, be tuning into the Chris Whalen uh, podcast. Uh, I, I imagine I'll have some pretty strong takes, um, the interesting takes. Um, you know, for me, it's a question of atmosphere, and I'm actually going to be paying much more attention to the regional banks uh, than to uh, the the GSIBs, because the you know the GSIBs appear also to have been uh, liquidity beneficiaries, and you know the, what I want to hear from them is what are you going to be doing to get this stuff off your balance sheet? Is it creating liquidity? Uh, is it creating leverage ratio problems for you? And how do you uh, you know, is it going to squeeze anything else out, which is, you know, a, a real concern? Uh, I'd love to know. Well, actually, here's one question I would ask Chair Powell, um, though we may know the answer from the bank reports by then, but has there been, have bank supervisors been willing to exercise forbearance on leverage ratio constraints that to the extent that a, that a large bank sees large inflows uh, that would put them at level leverage ratio levels they don't want to be at. Uh, you really, they know that those are temporary inflows. You really don't want them to for, want to force them to uh, cut back on their regular funding. You want them to keep their structural funding intact uh, to the extent that they are just getting that overflow from the small banks uh, or from vulnerable banks. Uh, Will they be allowed uh, to just ride it out, or will they have to apply leverage ratio constraints very rigidly? Uh, but more broadly, I'll be looking at the regional banks and just the atmospherics of it. Uh, yeah. Do they? One of the real questions is, I think, for a lot of banks, is going to be whether they need to structure new ways of finding uh, secured funding sources. Are we going to develop new platforms for posting collateral against certain kinds of deposit, uninsured deposits? Are they going to try to securitize assets that could be taken off the balance sheet uh, so that you can, uh, you know, you can keep the risk exposure, but your uh, overall direct funding is uh, smaller? It, you know, we may see banks looking to get involved in the repurchase agreement market. Can they replace uninsured, unsecured deposits with uh, instruments that look more like a repo, but perhaps uh, not with government securities? Uh, I think that the you know the the revolution in the way we think about the stickiness of uninsured deposits is going to make banks want to look at uh, a lot of alternatives, and it'll just be interesting to see how far along they are in the process of uh, rethinking all of that. 
It'll be very interesting to see. Yes, so small banks, regional banks, have seen a significant outflow, which is what a lot of people are, are worried about. And Chris Whalen, he shares the, those those concerns. Um, large banks actually have seen, as you you indicated, Lou, a mild inflow. It's leaving you know a regional bank and it's going to the the large regional banks. Lou, before before we go, I just want to confirm: Do reporters talk to you about when trying to find a question to ask Jay Powell? Is did I get that right? Well. Look, they're pros at what they do, uh, but everybody likes uh, a sounding board. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a conversation that I'll have from time to time. That That is uh, pretty cool. Joseph, tell the audience a little bit about, about Lou's uh, Money Market ob- Observer. You you mentioned at the beginning that you know, sort of everyone at the Federal Reserve is, yeah. is reading it. Um, yeah, Absolutely. The Money Market Observer is one of the best publications on dollar money markets. And, and Lou is a giant in the industry. So if you are a pro, you definitely want to check out his publication. I'm sure you already have. But if not, uh, where can they find you, Lou? Uh, they can find us at www.rightson.com. Uh, or just Google on uh, Money Market Observer. There we go. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Joseph. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.